Welcome to the DLR Library Podcast, Need to Read, recommended reads from those in the know. So today I'm talking to Kieran Casey. Uh, Kieran is an Irish economic historian and he's currently uh, researching in the Department of Finance. And he's written a book um, called Policy Failures and the Irish Economic Crisis. By um, published by Palgrave Macmillan. You're very welcome, Kieran. Thanks for talking Thanks, to me. Thanks, um, so can you, can you tell me a little bit about your area of research that you're doing at the moment, maybe? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll try and lose every possible listener from the outset. Yeah, at the <laughs> moment, so I'm doing, um, I suppose, uh, um, economic history. The history departments used to do this stuff. And then I suppose the economists stole a jump on them a couple of decades ago because they were just so much better at the quantitative stuff. So history of departments essentially don't really do it much anymore internationally, um, which I think is a pity because the economists are brilliant at going, you know, we've looked at the economy and here's what happens and, you know, X and Y, Z. Whereas I suppose what I'm trying to do, there's an awful lot of stuff in policy then that doesn't get looked at. What historians are very good at is we read through all of the documents on X or all of the letters exchanged here and realised why people did X or why people did Y or whatever, why they came to such and such a, a decision. Um, and I suppose that stuff gets neglected, which is why I got interested in it. Um, yeah, the last book was, yeah, kind of I got really interested in why why was everyone so unprepared for when the economy crashed in 2008? Um, everyone was going around at that point going, oh, yeah, I predicted it or I predicted it. Or if you look at X or Y or Z, I forecast this aspect of it. And um, yeah, just got really interested in going through and looking through and seeing, OK, well, first of all, why, who actually did predict it? And then... Um, the very few people who did see aspects of it, what made them different to everyone else and um, mm. how they predicted, which was great. Um, yeah. Very few did. The the people who did um, had a very historical perspective and an international perspective. You couldn't have one or the other because Ireland hadn't really had experiences of, you know, a property boom and crash. So it wasn't good enough to just know the history of Ireland. You had to know the history of other countries and acid mm. bubbles and market crashes and all this kind of stuff. Were they particularly looking out for it, do you think? Yeah, it's funny, actually, the last time. There's a brilliant book, actually, which I'm going to... I'll throw in loads of books that I, you know, I'm meant to be. But, uh, yeah, Charles Poor Kindleberger has his classic um, Manic, Mania's Bubbles and Crashes, I think is the name of it. But it's essentially there's just this, you know, eternal history of acid bubbles. Um, I think between 19... The study always used between 1980 and 2000, there were 112 financial crises in 90 countries. And you just had this phenomenon around the millennium that a bunch of advanced kind of economies, we all came to the conclusion that these don't happen anymore. And loads had happened. It wasn't just like they had only happened in developing countries. They were happening, you know, there'd been, um, there'd been ones in Southeast Asia, there'd been a crash in Japan, there'd been ones in Scandinavia. I think I worked it out and I think, you know, something like a third of Ireland's kind of Western European neighbours had had mm. crashes within living memory. But, you know, everyone came to this conclusion around the 2000s that the world has changed. Yeah. Um, there's and, another... and we all expect nothing bad to happen to us. So... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember at the time going, well, like, you know, you've got these kind of, you know, horsemen of the apocalypse thing that everyone thinks they graduate from. That, and, you know, so war, um, kind of financial destitute, like, and, and yeah, plague was one of the other ones. And it was kind of going, I remember at the time, and if, obviously since we've all become much more aware of epidemics and, and um, people saying that, that, you know, we we in Europe became so kind of, you know, convinced that this was something that happened in other places 
and other times. So it's kind of the same thing. Um, Yeah, there's a brilliant book, uh, This Time is Different, which is Rogoff and Reinhardt. And they looked at, so they said, and again, it applies to plays and stuff as well, is they were like, so most financial analysts would look at, you know, whatever, 20 years or 10 years of financial markets and they'd make their calculations based on that. Whereas big crises only happen, say, once every 30 or 40 years or once in 100 years. Um, so they'd never catch some in their analysis. Um, and they said they went back and looked at 800 years. And they said, so like, you know, the idea, so countries like in Europe, we don't have huge sovereign defaults anymore, or we don't have massive runaway inflation anymore. But this idea that we graduated from not having market crash is just, it was never true. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, you need to look at other countries and back far enough. And I think you kind of suddenly realise, okay, all of this stuff's always there in the background. Um, is it like cyclical? Like, is are we, do you think we've learned from what yeah. happened? Or, do, or is it, are we heading that way again? Um, it's funny, actually, I was just talking to my wife this morning, was saying, which is mad, is I think there's a Financial Times article saying Germany now are apparently offering 100% mortgages and I think is the interest rate 0.6% or something. And it's just the 100% mortgage thing sounds exactly like Ireland in the early 2000s, whereas mm. we now have really good, you, you're only allowed to borrow three to four times your income, which is fantastic because it means that, okay, well, look, if you have if you have a crash, at least people aren't totally leveraged up to the hilt. Um, which is great. And then it it pulls back to all of that kind of literature on asset bubbles where there's um there's one on the Wall Street crash, um, Galbraith, uh, the 1929 crash is quite a good book. And he said, like, you're know, essentially the distance from the previous crash. So he said, like, people in the people who'd experience a Wall Street crash would never get swept up in a runaway bubble again because they'd lived through it. Whereas by the 1950s, the chances of getting swept up in it again are much higher. And I'm kind of thinking now, I'm like, well. You know, our generation from Ireland are probably, you know, going, OK, well, look, you know, people may complain about three to four times, but only being able to borrow three to four times your income. But at least we understand yeah. this, yeah. you know, market cra- crash and there's a purpose for it. And going, oh, my God, if the Germans are getting swept up in things, <laughs> no one's immune. Um, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I mean, institutionally there, we probably have learned from that perspective, which is great. Yeah. Um, a bit more frugal. I was my my to my sister about Celtic Tiger, and the main thing we remember is we were getting taxis everywhere. <laughs> we'd be getting ready to. I mean, we were younger in our twenties, but we'd be getting ready to go out, and the, we'd leave the taxi with the meter running outside while we were getting ready. Like, like I would never. I don't even get a taxi in an emergency now, or if it's like a lasting rain. But we were just getting them all over Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah, it's a, there's amazing threads and stuff online of people are most kind of biggest indulgence and whatever. I think someone's was watching their, uh, I think it's probably Paul Howard said it, watching, you know, the neighbour have a, a hot tub crane lifted into the back garden, you know, where everyone, I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't so sad, it's comical. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, so I, f- I follow you on Twitter and you did tweet something for the, funny the other day about your research. You were saying that um, you came across um, that, in the 80s, the Department of Labour regularly submitted memoranda to the government in Comic Sans. Yes. No, it's it's strange. Yeah, they don't. Um, actually, it's one of the brilliant things you get is, so yeah, the, the current project is, so yeah, the Department of Finance picked me to do their history. So there was one done, a guy who lectured me, Ronan Fanning, did one back in the 70s, from, running from 1922 to 1958 so I'm doing from 59 to 1999 okay. um, which is great it's a really cool period because it's like yeah. it's you know you've the kind of you know the 50s is like an appalling decade for Ireland 
the 60s and 70s look pretty good. The 80s is an appalling decade. And then the 90s is incredible. So you get a yeah. lot happening. We go from being Ireland in the 80s, I looked at it recently, it was about as poor then as Russia is now. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you move from that, from being like half as rich as the rest of Europe to being, you know, one of the richest countries within, you know, 15 years. Um, but yeah, so I'm getting to go through, which is just so brilliant. The Department of Finance have 100,000 files covering the period. And each file, they can range from a few pages to, you know, up to your shoulder. Um, some of them are, I'd say on average, there's probably, I mean, gee, I can't even, but like I'm pulling out, say, 5,000 files. Even that's probably a million pages. You know, it's just the amount of material. Yeah. is just ridiculous. Like, and in a way, it's a curse, um, but you get very good at like just hurtling through stuff. And the... Um, the way I kind of do a lot of it is, you know, you get kind of rules of thumb is like, look, if um, if something was published, we kind of know about it. You know, it's in the public domain or if something was a dull debate or if, um, yeah, something if it was a speech or something, you know, it was all sanitized or whatever. Yeah. Where you get the really gritty stuff is, yeah, say memorandum to government. If a department brings a memorandum to government, that's a decision happening. That's a minister going, we need government to decide on this. And whatever and they're going they're arguing for something and you'll get counter memoranda from other departments going no we totally disagree and you're idiots and whatever that's fun or else you get internal letters or letters between departments where they're arguing stuff and they're really good yeah. um but yeah you get in the middle of all that you get a department for labor submitting its memoranda in comic sounds in the 1980s which um the whole way through in comic sounds which i think would kind of undermine you know if you're going yeah. to labor is it's a tactic to like yeah <laughs> At least it wasn't Misty Script or something. Yeah, well, it's softening everything up. Yeah, I'm sure the conspiracy theorists, do you remember with 9-11, the conspiracy theorists said that if you wrote out something in Weddings that it like, you know, essentially reenacted 9-11. Actually, it's really interesting talking to them in there what they go through the files for. Um, So all their archivists. So under the, I think it it was the 30-year rule, it's now the 20-year rule. The idea is that their files are all meant to go to um, the National Archives and then they're publicly accessible and um, there's a backlog because I think the National of Arch- the National Archives are totally overburdened but the um, the Department of Finance Archives go through and just make sure that you know no one's they're not releasing a file where someone's you know something said about someone or you know that you know you're not impugning anyone alive so like I, I'm very conscious of like you know I don't you're not having a go at individuals and um I think if anyone did want to read that, it would probably, you know, very few people would know who you're talking about anyway. So it's pretty boring for everyone else. I'm much more interested in like, yeah, so what did the Department of Finance, what do they concentrate on? What do they do well? Um, You know, I mean, they were, they played a large role in the transformation of the economy um, from, yeah, this, you know, perennial poor European backwater to, you know, a really modern economy. And like, in a way that no one would have predicted, you know, like as in, there aren't that many countries who've had a trajectory like Ireland, um, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's just brilliant getting to kind of, you know, sit there and read how it happened and yeah. um, think about it. So, yeah, loving it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we might, maybe we'll start with the books um, oh. that you've chosen. Um, so you've chosen books on, I guess, contemporary Irish history. So it's spanning um, part of the time that you're researching, but maybe 1920s up to 70s. Um, I'm thinking, yeah, well, we start with Mary Daly's one. So, yeah, yeah I, I picked so I picked two kind of mainly economicsy ones and then two non-economicsy ones. So, again, no. with the economics ones, I'd be better judging them. But, yeah, the other ones just, I'm sure, um, people probably, you know, two economicsy ones is probably enough. But I picked two ones that are really brilliant and interesting and anyone will enjoy. So, yeah, yeah that's okay. for 
Okay, so the Mary Daly one is, so Mary is, she was a professor in UCD um, for decades. She's a professor emeritus now. And so the book I'm picking is 60s Ireland. But so Mary, she, um, she, um, she's just a brilliant historian. Her work ethic is just ridiculous. So she's, God, I'm trying to, I can't even remember how many books she's published now. But say when I went to look at, you know, okay, well, what other, what other histories of departments have Irish departments been published? And there's four previous ones, um, and two of them are Mary's. You know, so Mary did one on, I mean, for her sins on agriculture and one on the environment. But she did histories, you know, so she's uh, one of the top social historians in the country. And I mean, God, in terms of the economic stuff, she's brilliant. So she did, um, she's done histories, I think, certainly spanning back to about 1800. And I mean, she's 10 or 12 books. They're, they're all just incredibly meticulously researched. Um, and then, yeah, what I love about the 60s one, so everyone does, it's this, you can see the cover, which I know the podcast can't, but um, it's, um, I find the really big spanning books a little bit hard to read because so say, for example, if you have a book running from 1800 to 1960 or something, uh, I'll know plenty of what happened in the 20th century, but I might know what happened much in the early 19th century. So I'm trying to struggle. I need probably more of a primer. Whereas what's brilliant about, say, just focusing on the 60s is you get to go into this detail, um, which is brilliant. You get a real sense of what it was like. Um, this one, what I love about it, so she's done it as, if I can find the contents, it's in four parts. So it's the economy, society, politics and international relations. I think it's that three parts. Oh, three parts then, yeah. But um, so the economy one, like from my point of view, there's le- it's really readable for like anyone with, I mean, if you could read the uh, economics pages of a newspaper, that stuff's really interesting. Um, and from my point of view, like I go to it all the time as a reference piece. It's just really good. It's really historically robust. But then there's loads of stuff in the society stuff in terms of, you know, the, the place of women in Irish society and so on. But like I have a real human interest in and I don't know as much about and it's you know it's a brilliant primer there there's bits in it which I love um there's one bit which just always sticks with me so she goes like and it's this I mean it kind of gives a sense of how researched and thoughtful it is she goes so the 1960s you know you've a fraction of the cars you on on the road that you do now but there's no etiquette had evolved for people to drive them properly so you'd like you know this tiny number of cars but like perennial traffic jams because for example in in town like in dublin city that like everyone would just drive in and like i was talking to my mum about this and she has memories of like being dropped outside brent thomas you know just like you'd be, yeah just amazing yeah but you'd be dropped off but and people had no perception of like this idea of like it was unthinkable that you would park your car somewhere and walk a few minutes to your destination. So you had cars apparently parked six cars deep on O'Connell Street that you just couldn't get through it. Um, It's just this idea. It's totally different society. And she said like, so I think there were 600 road deaths a year. And so, which is four times what it is now with, you know, a a much smaller population and a tiny number of cars and no one cared. Like that, there was it was there was no media coverage on it. It yeah. wasn't a big news story, you it know. <laughs> yeah, part of life. Like, yeah, it's and it's it's really funny because I've spoken to people who remember the period since, and they'll go, "Oh no, look, sure, it wasn't as bad as it was, but like it, it, as it is now." But it was infinitely worse, or not infinitely worse, but dramatically worse. But just it wasn't reported, and you just get this thing of like 
in a way, things like road accidents now are newsworthy, are newsworthy because they're rare. Whereas like, you know, in the 60s, it just never came up because it was just part of life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, drinking as well, were they? Or, or like... Oh, oh yeah, the drinking. Yeah. So I don't know if she goes into his room, but oh God, yeah. Like I know, um, yeah, I... <laughs> I know I spoke to a retired guard a while ago who said, and this was from like the 90s. I mean, this was in the 60s. And we were going like, what was the, you know, what was the actual etiquette in the roads? What was in it? He said, <laughs> he said, if you were absolutely like incapable of driving, the guards would drive your own car home for you. <laughs> and you were the following morning having had this escort. And otherwise they just wave you on. That was the etiquette in Ireland up till yeah. Yeah, a generation I'm ago. Sure. No, it was a yeah, very kind of permissive thing. I, I was reading, um, I'm reading a, another book at the moment. It's a guy, it's a former finance official and he's growing up, he was talking about growing up and playing GAA in Kerry. He was born in the 30s. And um, so it must have been, say, the 40s as a kid, and they'd all be driven in the back of a trailer to their matches, and the guards would just kind of wave them on, you know, it would be a, a thing. But the deal was they weren't allowed to go through the stove in the van so they all or in the back of the trailer so they all get down just outside the stove they'd walk through he'd drive through and he'd meet them at the other end and they'd all get back in <laughs> and everyone thought this was fine <laughs> you know this was <laughs> you know developing the rules of the road very slowly exactly yeah 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 entirely well that's it yeah you need to change the culture don't you yeah yeah so yeah. she so she it goes up to the 70s does it or she yeah, it's 57 to 73 it's kind of a long 60s chapter we, historians do this a lot because so yeah there's I mean we joined the EC in 73 so it's a natural breaking point and yeah, yeah 50, 57 yeah it doesn't fall perfectly within decades but you know yeah yeah you do your best you know? yeah. so, but no it's a great book it's really really good and yeah I've recommended it to people mm. and they've loved it so yeah it's really really yeah. good particularly for anyone who kind of remembers it there's a lot um, there's a lot there that's really worthwhile. Great. Rocky well, Road and Faces as well there. Yeah, yeah. well, I do Rocky Road. Well, I do because yeah. I think it's the natural one, yeah. yeah. So that's Cormac O'Groda um, is, so he's an economist. He's in the economics department in UCD. Actually, he's retired as well. But um, he, so, and uh, again, uh, he was my examiner for my Viva. Um, and actually, what struck me with Cormac then, and like I'd known him before, um, kind of you know uh, just a little bit but he um, with generally when you get your viva so your examination at the end of your PhD mm-hmm. and um, you you know people inevitably or any kind of checks or anything like that people give you essentially they go oh, you should read x and y and z and it's all their hobby horses and their pets and you know all stuff that has nothing to do with what you really research whereas Cormac gave me this big long list of kind of readings that were all incredibly appropriate to what I've done um, that I should have read and massively enhanced it and also have nothing to do with what he's ever published on. And my entire reaction was like, how the hell do you know all of these? And he just, like his, you look again, like his research, the breadth of it. So he's one of the foremost experts in famines in the world. He's definitely the foremost expert in the Irish famine. And um, he, he's just written a mad load of books. Like the, there's one on, yeah, Jewish Ireland and the age of Joyce, you know, just because it's an interest. He's a fascinating guy as well. And you talk to him, like I've got to know him quite well since. And you talk about um, 
yeah, we'll talk about uh, Italian migrants opening ice cream shops in Northern Ireland was apparently quite a big thing. There's just, yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of Italian migrants. Um, this one I picked, so it's a Rocky, it's called a Rocky Road. It's actually out of print, but you can probably get it in, you know, all good libraries. Oh, well, well done. You've got it. Okay, brilliant. It's yeah. <laughs> fabulous. One, one of the, the first thing you'll notice when you pick up, which I mean, all books should have is it's 220 pages, which is a remarkably elegant uh kind of run of a book and if I had to read it's incredibly readable and it's kind of thematic and if you had to pick one book and I'd say you know get a primer on so it's the Irish economy since the 1920s and it's published in 97 and I'd just say yeah do that one you know just as in it's it's a brilliant economic history it's really readable it's full of cartoons and stuff which kind of capture people's thoughts at the time there's an amazing bit in it that always makes me laugh is um he said like he's talking about you know again it's it's a fairly kind of nice book and which is is funny for like Ireland had um and actually was Cormac wrote a paper on it Ireland had like five crises between 1920 and you know 2010 so it shouldn't be you know kind of a nice book to read but yeah I don't know how he manages it it is and he talks about so the 50s was a fairly grim decade for Ireland but he talks about so post-World War II you this mini tourist boom. And I've always kind of wondered why why would you have a, a mini tourist boom? And he said apparently a lot of it was English people or British people during rationing coming over to Ireland to get a good meal. That um, suddenly uh, Irish Irish cuisine became this, this destination attraction for a couple of years, which you know we probably lost. I don't think anyone could accuse us of having built on that. But um yeah, it's full of that kind of stuff. Um and the theories on, like, I suppose, yeah, and perspectives in the Irish economy, they've changed a lot over the years and they've evolved a good bit and there's various new theories. But, like, Corbett's book just it stands up on everything. It's 23 years old and it's still the book I tell everyone to go and read. Um, and, yeah, again, out of print, so you have to have to use a library for it. <laughs> All right, well, I'll finish this and, and I'll drop it back. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're open again. Properly. Well, I mean, that's a, it's a great thing is like, even if a couple of people read it, I mean, it's just, but yeah, it's just super. Yeah. Good. It's, it's so. I hope is it, like with the podcast, you can, we can revive some interesting books that are just sitting there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no. And it's like, I go to it all the time as a reference book. There's loads of stuff in it, but again, I suppose the reason I picked both Cormac's and Mary's is so me writing a book on the department of finance. Um, you know, I do both of these as a, uh, as reference books are top notch, but they're also incredibly accessible. They're also books that I give to someone for Christmas and they yeah. read and enjoy. So, you know, it's rare that you get um, kind of really good, solid academic books that are also really enjoyable reads. And yeah, I mean, Cormac's book is just laced with um, stuff that's just really kind of decent and enjoyable. And um, yeah. yeah, you come out, if, you, if you're able to absorb... I mean, it's really readable. It carries you along. But if you could absorb a bunch of it, you just know a lot about Irish economic history at the end of it. And it's it's a short book. and It's not painful. So (laughs) too many um, people don't talk about this enough. Way too many nonfiction books are and too many fiction books are extremely painful. And she put down after 50 pages. And uh, yeah, so I'm kind of. uh, It's well in doubt. um, (laughs) It's not. Yeah, it's not too scary. And the the company. The comics do help. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. No, but it's really, it's really kind of relaxed writing. And um, it's kind of very, he's, he's very, it's very kind of understated, but very kind of 
um, simple language and getting across these kind of complex points really well, which is, you know, deceptively difficult. Do you yeah. know, that, that you're picking something that isn't that intuitive. And, and I mean, Cormac would be regarded as by far the top economic historian in the country. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, really good book. Great. I look forward to that one. Um, so next we have Connor, Chris O'Brien or... Oh yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, we can do either. Yeah. So I'm I'm straying out of my obviously my undergrads in history, but I um these are more ones that I would have read for just, you know, uh just an enjoyment. Um so straying out of the economic history one. I suppose Roy's one, Vivid Faces. Um so Roy, and again I've got, you know, a caveat, Roy was my PhD supervisor. Um he was for decades was a professor, the Irish history professor in Oxford. Um, retired a couple of years ago is now in Queen Mary UL um, and yeah he's again just like prolific um, publisher the book that kind of made his uh, career I suppose was Modern Ireland published in the late 80s I think and like you know a history from I think about 1600 might have even been earlier to 1970 and um, I don't know how someone embarks on that but anyway he did um, and it's still the landmark Irish text um, you know the kind of longer term Irish text and um, of his stuff again I, it's funny because I I've I suppose a more patchy knowledge of Irish history I'd um so you know he starts talking about the confederation of Kilkenny and I'm trying to remember back from the junior cert what the confederation of Kilkenny was whereas um the books that I get huge amounts out of of his are so he's one on um called Luck in the Irish which is from 1970 to 2000 which I love. It's just, yeah, it's really colourful. Um, and it's it's based on a bunch of lectures he did in Queens. And just, yeah, it's again, like Cormac's, it's a thin book. It's really accessible and it's just packed with brilliant stuff. And um, the reason why I love Vivid Faces came out in the last couple of years. And I suppose, again, I'd read a lot in college of stuff that was very, so it's about, it's about 1916, but it's based on, the, mem- the diaries and letters and I suppose interviews he did with children of um, participants and kind of very kind of, I suppose, middle class and upper middle class participants um, and what they wanted to come out of the rising, what their hopes and ambitions for the rising were and so on. Um, and yeah, I always had this kind of fairly negative view on it that, you know, well, what came out of it and I didn't like what Ireland became in the decades after and so on. But of course, all these people, they were young, they they were part of, you know, there was, you know, international rejections of, you know, Edwardian norms and so on. And yeah, they were like, I mean, there were, they were vegetarians and vivisectionists and they, they wanted a totally different Ireland to the one that emerged, which is really interesting. Um, and I think quite a lot of them were very disappointed with what Ireland became in the 30s and 40s. It was quite different to what they thought that they'd fought for. And... Um, and also, yeah, what I what I thought was great. So there were people like there were stereotypes. Some of the books I'd read had had been quite disparaging of um, Constance Markievicz. Um, she I'd seen things which kind of castigated her as being this kind of you know upper class brat kind of thing. And um, yeah, I remember like Roy's book. You just got like it's not true. You know, he'd read all her diaries and whatever, and like she was more than that. Um, so it it for me it put a lot of flesh on the bones of what I knew about 
people and these characters and the history around it. And it, I suppose it complicated the story more that I think with 1916, and I'm sure like I spend my days on Twitter with people, you know, kind of abusing me because I don't agree with their position on it. But um, both both sides are probably guilty of caricaturing it or just seeing it as being a very simple thing. And, you know, I'll never with something like that I just I don't think they had a mandate and I don't you know I'm very very nervous about political violence and I generally just don't think it's a good thing but at least it complicated my view of it you know it made it 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 made it harder just to kind of write off what people wanted and their ambitions and so on so yeah I got I got a lot out of it um and I think yeah one issue I know people pointed out with it was you know well what happened what about you know the foot soldiers and more working class people the people who um, and I think a lot of that for Roy was determined by the fact you know where are the source material who leaves diaries who writes letters um, but there has been more on that done on that there have been more books so I'm kind of people have been recommending other ones associated for me to read so I've got much more to do in 1916 again it's not my it's not my area I don't have to do it professionally the one thing actually that I like about when I'm not actually writing a book is I get to go and read more broadly whereas like I'm in the middle of like you know three years of just reading you know I I cheat that I read stuff for work at night and pretend to myself that it's for pleasure yes kind of not so yeah exactly but that's yeah well I, it's yeah busman's holiday I always have with that when I'm going on holidays actually I always have um the problem where I go okay well like the deal I make with myself is you're not allowed to bring anything that you could possibly take a footnote on, you know, or sorry, take a, take a note on, but like you can't use anything that you could use for work because originally I tried to go, okay, you're not allowed to bring anything economic and anything his or anything history. I'm suddenly looking around going, but all of my books are <laughs> economics and history. So I am, um, yeah, I loosened up. I'm allowed to read stuff, but just as long as it doesn't have any direct relevance <laughs> to, yeah, uh, yeah to that but, yeah, well, during, um, certainly during writing, I don't like, yeah, again, that's sort of, um, yeah, mea culpa with the 1916 stuff. I mean, I just, I hadn't read much on it in years and I just, I remember reading that book and it just, it added a lot and um, it probably yeah. Yeah, uh, removed some of my stereotypes about it. Yeah, um, it made me think I guess it'd be a great one to, for, I haven't read it yet, but um, it looks, the premise looks so interesting. It's called The Revolution, Revolutionary Generation and I haven't really read anything about like with the idea of uh, what brought people together or what 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 their lives were like, it seems to go into their sort of social lives as well and their relationships. Yeah, there's a lot, yeah, a bunch of them were married, and you know there were kind of various families who were you know married and they all kind of knew each other and were socially involved and so on, um, which is really interesting. I kind of I'm also interested in it as well. Um, I did kind of for various projects quite a lot on Gandhi, and you do get these remnant like the same period. Um, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff in the air. Like, I don't know why, but that period ranged, you know, the 1910s, there was an awful lot of um, kind of agitation or discontent or whatever in the air. And it was just, yeah, it was the same internationally. And I kind of kind of thinking more about how 1916 fits into that. Um, because, yeah, they certainly seem to think of, of that as well. I mean, obviously, yeah, people saw themselves in international perspective. They weren't just looking at Ireland, whereas I suppose historians were guilty of maybe just looking at... Um, you know, whatever we're looking at and not being aware of what they were looking at outside of them. Um, yeah, so that's one thing I always try and do in finance whenever I'm always really impressed when they're looking at other countries and what are they doing and what are they experiencing and so on. Because, yeah, like the same way we're doing now, we're, you know, we have a conversation, we go, oh, look, 
what's Germany doing at the moment in relation to the pandemic. You don't just look at Ireland. Um, so yeah, likewise, yeah, broadening out your perspective a bit is so important. And yeah, also with crises as well. Like I remember there's this phrase, um, actually Roy, back to Vivid Vases user, I remember one point and he was saying, and it was in relation to the economic crisis and he was going, you know, was there an element of generals fighting the last war? And that's the issue is that, you know, there's going to be another crisis, but you can be nearly sure that that's not going to take the same shape as as this one and like the economics of this one like we don't know i mean um like a lot of what's done has been absolutely right but you know we don't know i mean what happens in 2021 what does it look like there isn't really much precedent to look at yeah. um so yeah it's um yeah the stuff i mean it's it's hard to know yeah it is it's certainly an amazing time yeah no it is yeah it's one thing that is slightly humbling i was saying to someone recently is like you know i'm studying economic crises in the 80s and crises in the 80s and so on it's a bit weird to be studying a crisis that seemed like a huge deal until this crisis and now yeah. <laughs> it seems yeah. you know the past suddenly looks smaller but look you know we yeah. do what we can anyway sorry i know i've moved totally off the books <laughs> but, yeah, go back to one of the books so that was a basis at um i think that looks yeah. really interesting that one yeah it's brilliant it's really really good and it's really i mean a really interesting read I mean just from a yeah. even just from a human perspective I think people would like that a lot yeah yeah um and then I think that this I went to the last one now yeah so your last book which I have here as well perfect Honor, yeah Honor Cruz O'Brien States of Ireland I love the cover it's like yeah no it's cool again out of print which is or sorry it's back in print I think I had to buy a copy secondhand when it was out of print but I think you can get them now and um, this is it's so interesting so it's and again this is not my subject area but it made me having done I suppose a degree in history it made me really revise the conclusions I'd come to which I suppose is the bit I really like I always find that as in really important to deliberately seek out someone who changes your perspective or you find uncomfortable rather than just you know something that just immense it and um, because mm-hmm. so Hannah Cruz O'Brien he's oh like uh some people will obviously or plenty of people will know him he was so he was uh diplomat with the UN um, and he wrote a load of books he was considered so incredibly contentious person it, very trenchant views on the north which evolved as he got older so his own history is really interesting his his family had been very much home rulers and he was kind of of a generation where like the his parents and uncles and so on had actively been involved in politics and certainly his grandfather in the years before the state. So his whole family history, there'd been these kind of, you know, politically ascendant people who kind of, you know, I suppose their star faded as the state came to pass. And I suppose that, I think that probably coloured his perceptions a lot. And he talks about it a lot in his books. And as he got older, then he became incredibly hostile to republicanism and the IRA. Um, And, as he got older, I mean, he became, he joined a unionist party. He ran as a unionist. He was that entrenched about it. And I think he he lost people along the way. But this book so it was written in 72. It's As far as I remember, it's only a couple of years into the Troubles. And I suppose the point it makes for me, first of all, again, it's thin. It's a small book. And some of it's based on his personal reminiscences. He talks about, so he talked about history and family history I'm talking about and where he's coming from himself. He talks about, which I find fascinating. You never hear that really you don't hear everyone it's like everyone you know claims and you know to have fought in the gpo or you know whatever you don't hear people talking about you know we were you know part of the political ascendancy before the foundation of the state and we were the losers you don't hear that story much and he 
he yeah it's so interesting he talks about that he talks about he goes up as a politician as an observer at the outbreak of the troubles and he gets I think he gets beaten up at one point mm-hmm. and he literally reprints his diary and um, when he's going up and you know being attacked and so on and you know the response yeah. to that but the bit that I absolutely love about the book which for me I've never seen it as clearly and I remember I asked I've asked people who were involved at the time whether it was as groundbreaking intellectually as it seems to me. And they said, absolutely, like no question. And the point he makes is people, the perception in the South, certainly, and the traditional Irish perception would be that, you know, the antagonism regarding the North was Britain versus Ireland and that unionists were just, you know, misled Irishmen who could be brought around. Um, And his argument is, well, actually, Northern Unionism, it's this tradition stretching back centuries. It's a perfectly legitimate political perspective. He actually says, I think it's certainly it's his biography is brilliant as well. Um, and he says, like, it's not necessarily even one that he shares, but he does take the view that like he doesn't want to see people bullied or coerced into something that they don't want. Um, and that was his position. As long as they were a majority, well, then the only democratic solution is, you know, as long as the majority in the North wanted partition, then you had to abide by that or it wasn't democratic. Um, and it's something I'm fascinated by then. It just turns the whole thing at its head. And the, there are plenty. I mean, there's um, evidence of, and people have spoken about this, say, um, British uh, ministers talking to Gareth Fitzgerald, I think, in the 80s, going, how do we get back United Ireland? Or how do we unite Ireland? This, this idea that actually, you know, in a lot of ways, Britain just wanted to wash its hands of it. And that instead of seeing it then as being a kind of, you know, British-Irish antagonism, that actually it's, and this is O'Brien's point, that it's two old, very legitimate political cultures and identities, and even more than two on the island, and it's how do you harmonise those? It's not as simple as just going, oh, well, look, if, you know, if... um," And apparently, like, at the time, in 1972, that was just groundbreaking. There was no one had really imagined it that way yeah yeah they'd always seen it they'd always seen it as being this you know kind of you know just purely a a old colonial power versus you know former colony antagonism and yeah I mean the more I read about it and the more kind of you know you see FOIs from over the or not FOIs but kind of release documents from over the years and stuff the more it's borne out that actually they were the positions and, um, and was that accepted in the north, like with the unionists, and like did they, was he kind of was it reluctant at first or to kind I of? I don't. I don't know. Oh, I can see over the years he definitely that became the understanding. This idea that kind of like the northern unionism was a legitimate uh, position became more accepted, definitely. Um, and I mean, certainly, you know, it's this idea, how do ideas, how, how do ideas permeate? I mean, and he wrote newspaper columns for decades. One thing which I was fascinating, he was, he was so anti-violent republicanism. So he was very anti the Good Friday Agreement and wrote a lot about it and how it was negative and so on. And what struck me is, what really strikes me is I was watching on Netflix, it's really good, the Miami Showband Massacre um, documentary. And it's brilliant. It's fascinating. It's like deeply disturbing. And it's all about uh, collusion and um, involvement in the murder of the Miami Showband and um, collusion of the state and so on. But they show a clip of, and it was post-Good Friday Agreement, of um, loyalist terrorists being released from prison to cheering crowds and obviously the exact same happened on the nationalist side that you know people who murdered people were released to cheers 
and you know giving heroes welcomes and i can see why if you're o'brien that like that would just stick in the cross so much that you're watching this and it's the amazing thing about good friday about the agreement is that people were able to and it was Bertie Earn and Tony Blair were able to kind of go, okay, like we'll sign this if this is the price for peace, we'll do it. Um, I, I it, and they've been vindicated over time. You know, it's been an incredibly successful um, agreement and process. Thank God. Um, I, I'm very glad that I wasn't in O'Brien's position at the time because I can't imagine being able to go. Oh yes, I'm comfortable with that. I'm fine with yeah. with uh, you know paramilitary uh, people who killed people being being released but um yeah that's the position he took he just couldn't he couldn't stomach it so yeah that's I suppose he 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 was incredibly vindicated for the position he took in the 70s and then the position he took in the 90s probably you know he he was on the wrong side of history I guess Um, and a lot like um with the with the uh Congo incident Mm -hmm. so he, he was kind of lambasted about that for a while but then mm. then I don't know if he was absolved of of um blame there yeah you know what's really interesting with that so I again do you know it's it's a funny thing about his writing so the one that is considered like his masterpieces he wrote uh well he wrote two volumes on Edmund Burke and I tried reading the great medley and I tried reading them and oh god like I just gave up on it it was it's a load of he talked about it like it's a load of huge numbers of long quotes and kind of annotated in the middle and I just find I hate that because I find it really disjointed that I'm hearing O'Brien's voice and then I'm hearing Burke's voice and then I'm hearing O'Brien's voice and I can't yeah. really follow I'm it here as well um, or maybe I'm looking at it oh he, well no he does with his with his from his diaries and stuff yeah. and actually I think it works well there hmm. but yeah I didn't like it in, in the great medley and similarly to Katanga and back I found um so it was about yeah when he was a UN official uh, presiding over that I, I find that hard to get into because I don't know much about it otherwise and I've seen I've been to a couple of seminars on it and stuff but I don't know much but apparently so the the documents in Irish foreign policy series and um, so this is uh, it's actually a similar enough project to what I'm doing but it's so uh, Michael Kennedy and the Royal Irish Academy have been doing for years and years and um, releasing documents every couple of years covering foreign poli- Irish foreign policy. So it's a volume of the most important do- foreign policy documents. Mm-hmm. And they're up to the 60s now. And yeah, I heard Michael talking about it and saying, actually, apparently, Conor Cruz O'Brien's account is very vindicated by the files. Um, that, you know, having looked through them and stuff, that actually his position is quite is quite good. Whereas, yeah, he was, I know the, the movie, um, which I thought was really... Um, it was really brilliant, but he was he used to pick the with Jamie Doran in it. It's a really good movie, but but O'Brien's portrayed as being this kind of you know, handed official yeah. who just you know let them burn. But um, yeah, yeah I, again, I don't know, I don't know that much about it in the rest of his life. I mean, he's definitely uh, he's a controversial person, but apparently, um, even his political opponents would just concede he was incredibly bright, and he'd uh, I mean, people would accuse him of being too bright for own good. And I mean, again, he was one of these people who so like his becoming running as a unionist candidate in Northern Ireland, having been, I mean, he was a Labour minister in the 70s, cannot have been a comfortable position. But he's one of these people, kind of his thought process brought him there. And again, I mean, he says he doesn't even necessarily unionism, but he just didn't want to see people bullied into something they didn't accept. That was really great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was fascinating. Hopefully it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of wandering uh, rather than just... uh, No, it's really, it's, I mean, it's a specific time. Um, 
economics and history and it and it covers sort of our key writers and um, of the times many of them are still writing um yeah, yeah absolutely yeah uh, no and our i mean roy published um in the last couple of weeks published a book on shamasini um yeah, I'm sure. I know Mary is, um, she was one of the commissioners on the Mother and Baby Homes Commission. Um, right. So yeah. she is a historian there. Um, yeah, like Cormac's writing stuff all the time. Connor Cruz O'Brien's dead, so he, he is not. But um, yeah. yeah, the other three are very, very active, which is great. So, I mean, they're all really good books. Like, they're all ones where when I kind of had to sit in it and think of it, it was like, and like a lot of stuff, like a lot of my favourite books would be like international or whatever. And I was kind of like, okay, what are the Irish history ones that are actually really good? And yeah, those were they're really, they're yeah. just really good to read. Yeah, I think they're great. A nice selection. So they're in the libraries if anyone wants to uh, request them uh, once we once we can deliver them. Um, <laughs> my Irish history is my uh, least knowledgeable area. So, um, but these I think this is a, these are a really good start for me. So that's Brilliant. great. Okay, brilliant. Thank Thanks so much. for listening this is a dlr libraries production and if you keep listening we have our need to read extra bits where kieran tells us what he's currently reading thank you oh i just read do you know what yeah like internationally just unbelievable so robert frank he, he was professor of economics at cornell for years and he's just retired and um, he's so the book i'm reading at the moment and he's just one of my favorite writers he's incredible yeah. And so I think it's putting peer pressure to work. And it's, I mean, he looks at climate change and stuff like that, but it's essentially his point is, and it comes to this idea of like our decisions not being as much in our own um, grasp as as we'd hope. That like, so he talks about the, the, this effect of like how incredibly influential um, the decisions of people around us are. So apparently if a man... As a man, if my friend becomes obese, my probability of becoming obese increases by 100%. And um, the people around you, that if you're, what is it? If you're a man and you just, again, just the two first examples were men. If men, um, oh yeah, if they join, if they go in their first year in college, if they're in a dorm with a heavy drinker, their GPA falls dramatically in their first year. If they're both heavy drinkers, their GPA falls by a full point. So their grades fall by about a quarter because they just in, they just do what everyone around them is doing. Yeah. And he talks about this massive effect of like people putting solar panels on their houses. You know, within a couple of years, all their neighbours had solar panels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he said the biggest determinant, there's a study he's in it, um, and it wasn't in it, but it's just so interesting. He said, so the biggest, they looked at, so 3,000 pairs of sisters, where you've got sister A and sister B, and sister A doesn't work. And to go and see what's a big determinant where their sister B works. And it's not wages or level of education or work experience or anything. The biggest factor, and it's a huge significant impact of about a quarter, is whether sister A's husband makes more money than sister B's husband. Um, because that's a frame of reference. You go out and say, we don't have enough, we need to yeah. go out. And, and it's probably yeah. largely subconscious. It's a brilliant yeah. book and just like, we're all so affected by that stuff. But, yeah, um, that's it's really cool. like that. the anthropology kind of of mm. our 
instincts for how much, or how we're not really in control of what we do a lot of the time. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you could think I always think that the free and again, yeah, I'm really interested in the kind of free will stuff where it's like he, um, you can decide to do what you want, but you can't decide what you want. Do you know what I mean? You don't get to decide. You know, you can go yeah. and have a preference for X or Y, but you don't get to. You, there isn't really a process of you know you've got this emotional response and you pick x you know or whatever and then yeah you don't know where that you didn't necessarily get to decide where that came from and um, he's an amazing book as well just if people are really digging into it so passions within reason it's probably from the 80s now but oh it's just a super book like it's yeah he explains the evolution he comes up with an evolutionary hypothesis for why we would experience guilt desires for guilt or have guilt and a desire for revenge I, I won't go into it properly because, you know, yeah. people can read the book if they want. But if you think, I mean, there's a really good evolutionary reason for why we'd love or be angry or whatever. But, you know, guilt and a desire for revenge would both seem to harm you. So intuitively, there shouldn't be a really good reason as to why we'd evolve them. But he gives this brilliant explanation of. Great. of yeah, that's so, yeah. it. I love that. 